Amen. Thanks, Sean Michael. Um, it is so cool. I mean, one of the best parts of like being able to go, that was loud, uh, be able to go to camp is, is a chance. And I've been able to serve there over a, a bunch of years. My wife worked on staff there. I mean, we truly believe in what we're doing. Uh, we're going to jump into God's word, but hey, let's get the elephant out of the room. All right, let's talk about it. I have new shoes. Okay, I know you're all wondering, what's so different about John? No, um, I, I have shaved my head, in case you've never been here and you're curious what has happened. Uh, I have, have shaved it. This is not always like this. I got to this point, maybe you have deals like this. I have a deal. I had a deal in my marriage, uh, and maybe your marriage is just more functional than mine, but I had a deal in my marriage that if I ever got to the point where Lindsay's like, John, it's time. Like, you got to stop fighting your genetics and embrace the bald, shaved life. I said, if you ever feel like you get to that point, or I ever feel like I'm getting that point, I will consult with you, and then it's done. It's like the next day. So we had that conversation Tuesday night. Wednesday, boom, it was gone. I was like, I am not going to deal in an illusion. I'm going to deal in reality, and I'm now a, a, a bald guy in my 30s, and that feels good to just say it, like just to have it on, all right? So I don't have the genetics of Jesus, a.k.a. John Michael's hair, all right? So I just... I don't, I haven't figured that out yet. All the men in my house are bald. Now I'm the last one standing. So, uh, but it's funny because like, maybe some of you feel my pain here, but like when you are in that scenario where you know you're losing your hair, you have to make a decision, right? Am I going to pretend like I've got hair still and kind of do like the Donald Trump thing? Or am I going to embrace reality, right? And become who I actually am, which is a man who's 30 years old who hasn't basically no hair left, right? Like what am I going to choose? And it's funny, like the longer I, I kind of weighed those options, the easier it was to try to be someone I was not. It was like easier to try to pretend, like put different product or thickening or do treatments. And like in my head, I'm like, all right, this is good. I'm reversing the curse here. Like I'm getting back here. And it was slowly not becoming more and more true. Like I was figuring out I was actually going the opposite direction. And so when I finally shaved it, it was like, I've become who I really am. Like, I just have embraced this identity as a Gorvet man who has no hair left. And it's funny because I was shocked at how much harder it was to embrace shaving my head than it was to embrace, like, the fact that I still had some hair in some places, right? Like, I was shocked at how much easier it was to pretend that. And I learned that just like you did from a very early age, Right from elementary school, you begin thinking, who do I need to be? And, and sometimes that's opposed to who you actually are. Like it's something that's not really in line with who you are, like not in line with your identity. And you pick that up, like whether it's the clothes you wear, the shoes you have, the things you post, the things you share. As a student, you're like, I'm trying to, to fit into what people think I need to be. And this is true. I mean, you could take this all the way through. You get into college, it's the same thing. Join this frat and you'll be who you really are. Or, or add this to your life or have this relationship or get on this dating app and you'll finally become like who you really are. And, and, and at some point you have tension there. It, it starts to get worse. And, and I hate to break it to you, but the older you get, the more complex that gets. So as you become an adult, as you move into a career, maybe you buy a house, there's all of these expectations, who you think you are, the things you put on in order to be okay, in order to be viewed as put together or perfect. And then you get to like retirement phase and it just gets even worse because then it's like, well, if I retire, I've got to do it like this person, or I've got to have this condo, or I got to move to this state. And there's all these things we try to put on to become the kind of person we think God wants us to be. There's things we add. Sometimes those even become sinful in our lives. 
things we add into to be good. And the question we're asking this month is all about restoration. It's all about if, if all those things are true, at the end of the day, where is this world headed? Like, how are we going to be re- like fully perfected in the next life? Or whatever you believe about what happens when you die, where is the world headed is the primary question that we're exploring in, in this last kind of installment of our series. And I want to take you to a letter, a letter written by a guy named Peter to and he's spreading it throughout the Roman Empire. All these different Jesus communities would have read this letter and taken it on, but they were all facing a similar thing. All of them were living in an empire that was countercultural to the kingdom of God, to the countercultural to the, the already not yet, as we talked about last Sunday, inbreaking kingdom of God. He's writing to people who are suffering, who are sitting in the Roman Empire dealing with the fact that their lives are clashing, their former identity with the identity that Jesus is offering them. And this is what he writes. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. If you have a Bible, you can pull it up. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Quick pause. He's talking about the future. Right now, when Jesus just shows up a couple days later, he's talking about the fact that Jesus has ascended and will come back for his people. It's a future mind. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. As obedient children. Verse 15, but just as he, talking about Jesus, who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. This is a quotation out of the book of Leviticus. Now, what I think, those those are great verses. Maybe you have those memorized. Maybe you've heard messages on those. Maybe you're aware of what Peter says there. But I want us to take a moment and step back and remember who is saying these words. Like, not just the content, but who is writing these words. And it's the disciple Peter. It's the same Peter who when he saw this rabbi from Nazareth walk by and this call to follow, this call to sacrifice his life, to follow in the way of Jesus, he lays down his fishing nets, lays down his security, sacrifices in a sense his career in order to follow Jesus. It's the same one. It's the same Peter who, as he was on a rocky kind of boat ride in the middle of a lake, he sees Jesus literally walking on the water and Jesus calls out to him and says, Peter, walk on the water, essentially. Take a step of faith. Peter steps out of the boat and begins for a couple steps at least to walk on water. This incredible miracle. The other disciples would have been bewildered at what just happened. It's the same Peter. I mean, it's the same Peter who saw the transfiguration, kind of this divine moment where Jesus and the prophets of old come together on this mountain. And Peter's like so hyped up on this experience. He's like, let's build a tent right here. Like, let's live here. I want to live in this experience. And Jesus says, no, we have a mission to do. Let's go back down the mountain. It's the same Peter. It's the same Peter who says, I will never deny you. And yet we find Peter in the gospel stories in the courtyard saying, I've got no clue who Jesus is. I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't even, my accent is definitely not his. Like, I don't know who he is. Like, it's the same Peter, but it's Peter writing these words you just read. It's Peter saying, set your hope on the things of the future. Set your hope. And in setting your hope, you actually can fulfill the call to be holy, to live a life marked by holiness. 
And I realize as soon as you say the word holy or holiness, depending on your background, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I did not come to church for this, right? Like I, I grew up in, in this way or this way, and you've got tons of baggage just like I do when it comes to this word. But as you look at the New Testament, the deeper you study it, the more simple the definition of holiness becomes. And this is from somebody else. I don't remember who it was. So I'm just going to put it unknown. I don't remember who first said it this way. But Peter's definition that he would have been working with in his letter of holiness is choosing the way of love every single time. So if you broke down holiness in your own life towards your spouse, towards yourself, towards your relationship with Jesus, at the end of the day, it would break down to, did I choose the way of love in this moment? Did I choose the way of love every single time I had the opportunity? Now, listen, Peter's not, he's kind of pulling up Leviticus, but he's not saying, did you sacrifice this goat this way? Did you live out this moral code this way? Did you make sure to not swear your kids too much this week? Like you just go through the moral list that we often put in our minds of what holiness is. And he's saying it's so much bigger, from, bigger than that because at the very core, here's what holiness does. Holiness moves us from who we think we are, who we think we need to be to who we really are. It actually taps into what Jesus and others refer to as the image of God. It actually becomes, when he says Christ in us, is actually the way of demonstrating out the holy life that we were called to live. It moves us from who we think we are and all these things we put on faith and says actually holiness is moving towards a more clear understanding of who God has created you to be. Here's something that, again, depending on your background, this may be new or this may be super old. But holiness ultimately only deals in reality. Holiness does not deal with the illusion of who you are. Holiness does not deal with the pretend you you put on at work. Holiness doesn't deal with the person you think even God is supposed to be, this divine being you're trying to appease. He, he doesn't deal in that. Holiness, which is why confession is so hard for so many of us, only deals in reality. It's honest. It's transparent. It's not looking to bless and be a part of the fake version of who you are. Now, here's why this sticks out. I was reading a book called Death by Suburb, where this guy who lives in the, the Chicago suburbs is writing about, as he's trying to follow Jesus, he has a family, and he's got kids who got soccer games, and he's, he's a professor, and he's trying to buy a new car, and all these tensions he's facing, and realizes at the end of the day, that suburban life he's putting on is actually an attempt to be holy, to act holy, to look good, but it really isn't him. It really isn't speaking to the core of who he is. It's really not a holy pursuit at all. It's actually sinful because it's trying to meet God's, uh, meet the desire for God in places that are not God. And one thing he said at the end of the chapter hit me. And he's talking about the pursuit of holiness in the real life. This is what he says in his book right at the end. The imperfect life is the only life worth living. Let me just let that sit for a moment. The imperfect life is the only life worth living. It is, in fact, the only life anyone really ever really lives. The imperfect life. So if you grew up thinking holiness is perfect moral standard before God, that's an element of truth to that. But what Peter's point is, especially knowing who Peter is, knowing the writer of this letter, he's saying holiness is much bigger. It's choosing the way of love. It's allowing yourself to be vulnerable and transparent and open before God and others until he shapes you even more deeply into a holy life. Now, here's what you may be thinking. You're sitting there and you're like, okay, 
You're saying that because you're a pastor. You're saying that because you, you get paid to be holy, basically, right? You're saying that because you have a different vantage point to me. John, you don't know my kids. You don't know how stressed I am at work. You don't know my schedule. You don't know the expectations I have for, on myself or others have on me as a parent. You don't know how much pressure I feel in my business to get, get revenue and get sales. Like you may say, but John, I, I need to drink three IPAs in a row in order to not feel stressed, Right? And, and to that, the, the holy question would ask, who said? Who said? But John, I need to be on Bumble or Tinder to feel valuable and loved by somebody. Who said? John, I need to earn money no matter the integrity cost, no matter if people see it or not. Who said? But John, I need my kids to look good or else people will think I'm a bad mom. Who said? Who said? See, this right here, this conversation, holiness itself, is a sign of the new world. It's a sign of the restoring work that Jesus is longing to do, not just in the world, but in your life and in your story as well. And this is the whole point of Revelation, and it's the whole point of Peter's letter. Like, they're, they're trying to point to something that's so much bigger, holiness. Like, the first beginning chunk of Revelation is letters to churches who are living in the way of unholiness. Like, they're not living into their identity. They're not living into who they really are. They're trying to put other things on Jesus. But holiness is so key to the book of Revelation because literally Jesus, chapter 3, is described as holy. God is called holy by the four living creatures and the, and the martyrs we see in chapter 6. Three different times, Jerusalem, this new heaven, new earth reality, is described as holy in Revelation 21 and 22. And so Peter writes this letter to suffering Christians in Rome and says, it's in that view, before Revelation was ever written, that you actually have to set your hope in a place. You have to prepare yourself. Like the ancient kind of Greek idea, Hebrew idea that's around this phrase, set your hope, is literally, in the KJV, it still says, gird your loins, like, that's such a great phrase, right? No one has that as their life first because that's super weird, okay? That's, that's a weird thing. Literally, Peter's referring to, like, this analogy of, of taking your tunic or your, your man dress, I guess, and, like, tucking it into your belt so you can run freely, uninhibited. Like, this is what he's talking about. So you can truly focus on the task. I don't know if he's doing jump squats or what Peter was doing, but this is literally the, the metaphor he's giving for what it looks like to set your hope, to set your, your future on something. But verse 14 is often where we get tripped up when it comes to this conversation of holiness. See what he says right at the very beginning. The first three words are critical. As obedient children. As obedient children. See, it actually for Peter is not just about living up to a strict moral code. It's actually about pleasing his father because he loves his father. And because his father has an incredible and unconditional amount of love for him. It's living out of a father-son identity for, for Peter. And I think what's so fascinating about that is how he goes on. He says, do not conform. Like, don't let your life be shaped by the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, when you didn't really know the truth. Because sin and holiness both start in the same place. Sin and holiness both start with desire. Desire for God, desire to please him, desire to, to live into your identity as a child of God. And then when you try to meet at other places is where we end up in sin. And we try to meet it in him and allow him to shape us and transform us into actually holy 
people is where that desire is properly met. It's where that desire takes its shape and takes its future. He actually calls on, on this again in verse 18. It's not on the screen, but you can see it just a, lot, like a little bit lower on your page. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Did you catch this? The empty way of life is how he describes trying to meet the desire to be holy and good before God outside of a relationship with God, outside of a, a child and, and parent setting. Some of us like, grew up with holiness. Like I, This is definitely how, how I tended to grow up and how just kind of my personality is wired. Uh, almost like an OSHA, like days without injury. Like maybe you've seen this in a factory or plant, right? It's like this plant has worked this for this. They did really good. Like 2015 days without an OSHA recordable injury. Like that's an interesting sign, right? Some of you are thinking about the office episode, like right now, like that's where it's going through your head. But this is often how a lot of us view the conversation on holiness in our lives. How many days did I go without sin? How many days did I live up to this perfect kind of standard of who I think I need to be? How many days did I not have to ask forgiveness or confess something or, or share something? How many days was I just good? And Peter says living that way in holiness and trying to actually be a holy person is an empty way of life handed down to you. Maybe your parents handed that to you and you need to break the cycle. Maybe your grandparents handed that down to you. Maybe a church, maybe a leader. And you need to say, that's not how I'm going to live. I'm actually not going to act just, I'm not just going to act holy. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be transformed in the inside and the outside. This is why it's so interesting that 1 Peter 16, like the verse we kind of read right at the very end, for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. He's actually pulling on Leviticus here. He's saying, no longer is it tables and goats that are set apart for God's use. It's actually human beings. Like you can be set apart. You can be perfected in your love for God so much so that, that your light, your, your life just naturally radiates that love, naturally radiates holiness. I remember first someone across this, uh, this preacher a long time ago, some of you heard, uh, he's very famous, D.L. Moody, kind of a famous American preacher, had a, a ministry in Chicago. And he wrote some really interesting things, said some interesting things, but one of the, like, the footnotes that he had, and I think it was in a sermon, he actually talked about lighthouses. And I remember the first time I walked, like the, the kind of, I, I was going to say a boardwalk, it's not that pretty, but you walk down the sidewalk on Holland State Park, and the first time I saw a big red, this lighthouse, it was like, that's really cool. Like, it's an amazing building, it's beautiful, especially... You get a perfect sunny day, like the backdrop of, of dusk, or even in the morning, you can see it kind of set against, against Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. But did you know that very few lighthouses are ever equipped with any sound-making capability? Not, not big cannons or horns or, or even things to like indicate like audio-wise that they're there. They simply shine. And Dwight Moody's point is, like he says, lighthouses don't have to let you know they're there. You can see that they're there. And I think sometimes when we think about holiness, we, we tend to think like the people Jesus rebuked in the New Testament, Pharisees who say, no, you have to, I gotta let people know that I'm holy, right? I gotta let people know. I gotta blow the horn. I gotta ring the bell. I gotta crash the, crash the cymbal. I gotta make sure people know. And Peter's point is that when you actually let God make you into a holy person, you just shine. It's like you can't help it. 
You lead other people into safety. You lead other people into harbor. You lead other people into relationship with Jesus. It's just who you are. It just becomes a part of, of your DNA. And I think that's where we get tripped up. We, you hear that word holy, and it's like, man, I don't, I don't act holy. I, I've got thoughts in my life. I've got patterns in my life. I've got decisions I've made past, present, and decisions I'm planning to make that I know are not in line with God's best for me. But let me tell you again, God is not looking for you to act holy. God wants you to be holy. God's not looking for us to act holy. He's looking for people like you and people like me to actually be holy. This is why Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, one of the most powerful teachings in the New Testament, literally, he literally prays, he gives this list of what they call beatitudes. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus could have said a lot of things. He's God and man. He could have said, blessed are the pure in physical actions, thought life, and everything they say and do. But that's not what Jesus says. Unfortunately, for some of us, that would be easier. But he actually says to become who you really are, that's where blessing is. That is purity of heart. Dutch philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says this, that, that purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. This is the journey of holiness. Holiness has a way of moving us from who we think we are to who we really are, to who we think we need to be, to how we tend to put on spiritual performances before God. And yet Jesus is saying, Peter is saying, Revelation says to be holy as I am holy. It's part of who you are. I was thinking about this for us, and and this can obviously feel like a very kind of internal message, right? This can feel like, okay, I need to go home and do better. And if you get that out of this message, you've completely missed the point. But, But that's easy to internalize and think very personal about it. But at the end of the day, 15 years ago, this church was planted, a group of people just like you, who believed that by putting their kind of ping on the map, that there would be people who would meet Jesus. There would be people whose lives were transformed and changed. They sought to be a lighthouse. And 15 years later, think about, why are we still doing this? Right? Why are we still spending money? Why are we still working hard? Why are we still gathering? Why are we still doing all this? Even on the other side of like pandemics and things, when things are very challenging, why do we still do all that? I really think it's because I look around our room. I look at you if you're online and maybe you, you do this too. Like you look around and say, really at the end of the day, you and I are God's plan A for this world. You and I are actually partners. We're lighthouses in the restoring work that Jesus wants to do, not just in the future, though that's critical to have in mind. Peter says that, but also right now with the people you meet right now, with the people you interact with at lunch, with the people who you go to work with tomorrow, that that Jesus believes that you and I can actually make a difference in that. Ultimately, it's his story. Like Revelation, not about us, not about you, not about me. It's ultimately God's story, but, but he will accomplish it without us unless we just say, okay, I want to join in. I want to be part of this. God, I want you to use me. It's even flipping our thinking. Sometimes we think like church is Sunday morning worship service. And I I can tend to think that, right? Like a huge part of my week revolves around what we're doing right now. It is vitally important. But, But it's flipping our thinking. If you call Center Church home from, okay, I come to Sunday morning, I come to this, this is what church is, to saying actually Sunday mornings is much more like a weekly conference for everyday missionaries. 
that we come together from our respective places where we work, where God has put us, where we go to school, where we do family, and we come together to say, to get encouraged and inspired, and then we're actually sent back out. This is not right here all that there is. And when you become an actually holy person, when you tap into who you really are, that is just a natural next step. Like you don't have to try. (laughs) You don't have to try to put that on like, oh man, how do I like, reach somebody at my workplace, or how do I become a better dad, or how do I be a nicer student or, or a better student? No, it just happens because God has a father's heart for you. He has a, a love for you. It actually, when you become that person, when you tap into that, it starts to change everything. You really don't have to try. It's way more a matter of focus than it is behavior. And this is what it means to move from who we think we are we think God wants us to be to who we really are, to, to allowing us ourselves to be children of God. And here's a tricky part. From my perspective, this is really hard because what I love to do is force, because I'm great like that, every single one of you to buy into this life, to buy into the holiness message, to buy into what we just talked about and, and allow God to change you from the inside out. But the tricky part is I cannot do that. All of us have a decision. All of us have agency. All of us have the opportunity to stand before God and say, you know what? I'm going to choose that life. I'm, I'm done acting holy. I want you to make me holy. I want you to transform me. I want you to do the inner work necessary in order to do the outer work. And so the question before you, even before me today, Sunday morning, what life will you choose? What life will you choose? And God is kind and patient enough. He will not force you to choose. But you do have an opportunity. You do have a chance to say, I will build my foundation on something else. I will not build it on myself or my spiritual track record or my performance or my looks or my behavior or my spouse or my kids' performance. I'm gonna base it on you. And that's the only foundation, friends, that will last. So I'd love to pray over you, pray over your family right now. We're gonna respond and worship here in a moment. But let's just bring those things before the Lord. So Father, we thank you. When you see us, when you look down on us, you, you see kids that you love. Some of us had such bad examples of a dad that even relating to you like that is so difficult. Some of us, when we hear the invitation to be holy as you are holy, it feels literally impossible, so detached from our present life that we've given up trying. And I thank you, Jesus, that even in this exact moment, right where we are, that you want to free us from the need to try and to remind us every single day and even in this moment that being a holy person, choosing the way of love every single time actually taps us into who we really are, how you've wired us, how you desire us to make a difference and an impact and, and to be a lighthouse in the place that we find ourselves every week. So I thank you, Jesus, that right now you are, for some of us, chipping away bad foundations and wanting to rebuild good ones. You're taking off the masks of who we think we need to be and actually allowing us to be real, to be honest, 
to be us. We thank you that you won't fail. You don't give up. You're God of faithfulness. You're God of patience. You're God of justice and mercy. And so we cling on to that, Jesus. We pray that even in this moment, as we as we hold those two options before us, that you'd allow us to follow you where you're leading. We love you and surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen.